keys that guarantee or assure your, your success throughout your future. And I want to read today in Exodus 13, verse 11 through 16, and it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites. I just want to ask you, who is going to bring you into the land of the Canaanites? Say it with me. Who, who is that? Wait a minute. I thought they had to walk through that desert. I thought they were the ones that fought all those battles. Are you, are you getting my point here? It required the cooperation of God's people, but ultimately he is the one responsible. That supernatural component is what made it work at the end of the day. It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have. The male shall be the Lord's, but every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem it with a lamb. And if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Father, I pray that you would speak a word to us right now, that as I pray each Sunday will open our understanding and then put within us that passion to be obedient to your word because it forever changes our lives when we align ourselves with the principles of the kingdom of God. Your, your principles never change. Our lives can, the world can, but your principles are eternally settled. Your word is forever settled in the heavens and in the earth. It will not change. Every part of it will come to pass. And when we understand that and embrace that truth and align ourselves with it, we receive the immeasurable benefits that are promised us for doing so. I ask you to help us understand how that works today in Jesus' name. Everybody said in Jesus' name. God never asks us to do something without having a reason for requiring it. Never. I want you to think about it for a minute. We may not understand what that reason is, but God never asks us to do anything without having a reason behind his having asked us to do something. Nor does God himself receive a benefit by asking us to do what he asks or if we obey and respond to what he has requested. God doesn't receive a benefit from that. We are so accustomed to thinking as human beings and interacting with other human beings that sometimes 
we have to be taught all over again the protocols of relating to deity. He doesn't have a proprietary interest in our obedience. He doesn't gain anything from it. There's nothing in it for him, as it were. For him to experience benefit would mean that initially there was something that was added to him by us that was missing. If you receive a benefit, it is a foregone conclusion, an irrevocable fact of truth that something must have been absent if now someone has supplied something that is added to whatever you are or whatever you have. This contradicts the very idea of who God is or what God means. For him to experience benefit would mean that there was incompleteness on his part that existed and the very name Jehovah, you can look it up, means the self-existent and eternal one. Not just the self-existent one, which means that he stands all by himself and alone. Rather, I add anything to him or try to take anything away. He is complete in and of himself. But it says in that same word, Jehovah, he is the eternal one. Eternal means that it had no beginning or ending. Therefore, this state of completeness, of self-sufficiency, existed before time began and continu continues on throughout endless ages to come or what the Bible calls worlds without end. When you really look at the teachings of the Bible, contrary to what many of us have been taught, God's not the one that gets something out of it. We are. We are infinite in wisdom and with understanding that we can never come to grasp. God looks at us as a parent would look at his child and ask, what can I do to make my small child live a life that is more fulfilling and rewarding? And what can I do to help them avoid loss? And as we, experienced in the ways of life, try to pass on the wisdom we have learned through the years to our children, hopefully assisting them in avoiding some of the pitfalls that we have stepped into, and hopefully helping them not make some of the same mistakes we have made, their lives will be better than ours ever were at that age. Well, God's never made any missteps. He's never experienced any pitfalls, and so from the get-go, God is talking about wisdom that is not added to by anything that he has existed through or lived through throughout these endless ages that God has been in existence. By following his instructions, we benefit. Um, you've heard the old joke, a woman went to a pet store and purchased a parrot to keep her company. And she took her new pet home, but returned the next day to report that this parrot that had been told her had quite a vocabulary had not yet spoken so much as a word. And the storekeeper asked, does it have a mirror in the cage? Because parrots like to be able to look at their reflection in the mirror, and that makes them more gregarious. They're, they're more inclined to talk if they're is a mirror in the cage because that intrigues them, piques their curiosity. And so she brought 
a mirror home, bought it, brought it home. And the next day she was back again announcing that the bird still wasn't speaking. And the storekeeper asked the question then, well, what about a ladder? You know, parents enjoy walking up and down a ladder. And, and when they get a little exercise like that and are enjoying themselves rather than just feeling cooped up in that cage, it, they're more likely to respond by talking. So she bought a ladder and went home and put it in the cage. And sure enough, the next day she was back again. Same story, still this parrot is not talking that you told me had such an extensive vocabulary. And the store owner asked, well, does the parrot have a swing? Because, you know, birds really enjoy relaxing on that swing and, and it might just put him in a happy mood and, and that might encourage him to talk. And she bought the swing and went home and put it there with a the mirror and with a ladder. And the next day she returned to the store to announce the bird had died. And the storekeeper said, I'm terribly sorry to hear that. I, I just wondered, did the bird ever say anything before it died? And the lady replied, yes, it did. It said, don't they sell any bird food in that store you're going to? Mm. Uh-huh. You see, we need instructions that work. And God never asks us to do anything unless he has a reason. And that reason is never about any benefit he is going to personally receive from our obedience. It's about us. If we are willing and obedient, we eat the good of the land is what the scripture says. Now, I'm setting this up because there are a number of things that we need to understand about a successful future. Many people think that success is, is, can be found in the stock market. I'd just as soon, frankly, to go to Las Vegas and play cards is I'm serious you think I'm joking but I'm not I've learned enough through the years to and some people do okay in the stock market but what I've found out and what I've learned and watched over and over again is there are always a few people at the top that they manipulate the market and what they'll do is buy up a stock until it's red hot and then when everybody else starts buying it, they'll sell theirs and get their money and the stock starts going the other direction. They do the same thing with precious metals. George Soros is notorious for doing that with currency speculation. He'll buy currency from a country and all of a sudden everybody that's in currency trading will look at their computer and say, look at that, man, all these little ticks here going up. And they'll jump into the middle of that, and he has a whole myriad of companies that are buying independently, and they don't realize he's the one pulling the strings. And they jump in and buy it, and as soon as it gets up there where he wants it to be, he sells, and boom, it goes right back to the bottom. There is a deliberate transfer of wealth that is occurring in our world right now. And it's occurring from the average, ordinary person to those that are at the top of the heap, as it were. They get to control the system. And I've said it throughout the years. I am by no means a communist and would never want you to think that at all. But Karl Marx, upon whose economic treaties the, the socialistic idea was actually built and, and, and gained a following, was actually a brilliant economist. Now stay with me a moment. I'm going slow for a reason. I'm going to show you something. Karl Marx said that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the proletariat and the bourgeoisies. And he said that one exists to serve the other. And the person that 
owns the what he called the resources, and that could be intellectual resources, that could be factories, materials, land, and etc. He said they always build what he called the superstructure, which is education, hospitals, laws, everything else, to benefit those at the top. And they give you a job to work in their superstructure, set up their educational system to educate you, to feed into the system that's making them rich. And then what they do is pay you a salary. They don't hire you to make you wealthy. They hire you to make them wealthy. I've lived long enough to say, see, that is what is going on. Whether you want to believe it or not, that's the way it works. Amen? And somehow or another, you have to ask yourself, how do we break out of this manipulation? How do we get out of it? I'm reminded of when Egypt uh, took in and absorbed the 70 people that, that constituted at that time the family or descendants of Abraham. Jacob had moved to Egypt. They put them in Goshen. And after a while, the children of Israel became so blessed that Pharaoh became concerned. And Pharaoh said, uh, and there was a famine. You remember there was a famine. And Pharaoh said, bring me uh, your, your gold. And then after a while, you know, he, he changed the currency to little scarab beetles. I don't know if you're familiar with that part of history or not, but they use that as a medium of currency, scarab beetles, beetles. and that became their, their system of currency. And once he had gotten everything, from, he, he said, bring me all your gold and exchange it for these scarab beetles because we're not using gold anymore. And once they did that and he had all their gold, then he turned around and said, okay, scarab beetles don't work anymore. Now you have to give me your land. He was trying to get the wealth of Israel and he manipulated them for a time. But there is a God that sits in the heavens that said there will be another transfer where the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. And God said, I'm going to do something about this. And after 400 years in captivity, God brought Israel out of Egypt with a high and a mighty hand, parted the Red Sea, gave them such favor were the very ones that had used them and tried to bilk them out of everything they had, made them slaves, that whenever they left, the instruction from the Lord was send the people of God out to borrow everything they can, all the jewels, gold, everything else they can from their Egyptian taskmasters. And you know what? They gave it to them. And then Israel left out of Egypt, and God literally gave back to Israel all of their back wages with interest for 400 years. Amen. Now that's saying something. And just what would happen if God were to suddenly give you the back wages and interest of all of your family members that have been robbed throughout the years? Am I talking to somebody that can relate to what I'm saying right now? God has a plan. This is called the kingdom of God, and every kingdom has an economic program. Tithing has always been God's economic program to elevate his people and provide them with supernatural assurances that their future will be guaranteed. They will have success. Most of God's people, as we have pointed out in this series, have not learned that. We've listened to the Egyptians 
and their formula. And we've tried to go their route, and it hasn't worked out so well. And I don't want to even talk about tithing today. But there was, there was something else that God asked Israel to do. When they came out of Egypt, God began to give them instructions on how to recover from being a slave nation in captivity to becoming the most prosperous nation in the earth. And if I were to line 10 people up here today and say these 10 people represent the 100% of your income, each one represents 10% of your income, which person would, be the, would represent the tithe? Most of us would count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and then say that 10th one does. And God said, that's not the way that this is going to work with me. I want the first one to be the tithe. And the other nine, I'll guarantee it comes in if you give me mine first. Amen. We always take care of everything else first. And in this, this stewardship campaign, one of the questions that has arisen, I received even an email this week. I haven't had a chance to respond to it. I've been traveling and very busy in meetings, but I intend to respond. One of our men uh, who just recently, uh, he and his wife gave a testimony. People were congratulating him on the testimony of how good God had been to him. And he made the observation. He said, but some of them said it hasn't worked for me, and it's not, I don't know why. And he asked him, well, how much are your bills every month? How much do you actually need? They couldn't answer that question because they, they haven't got a, a, a grip enough on their own personal finances to even know what the requirements are. And it's guaranteed that if that is the way you live, 100% of what comes in is going out your door. I, I, I didn't hear much of a response, so that tells me. I, no, you don't have to respond now. Your opportunity was just a couple of moments ago. What that just told me was many of us in this room live in that category. Secondly, many of us never take what God has given us in terms of our skills and abilities to improve upon those and develop new skill sets that God could actually use to lead us to another level. We're content to stay in that. Remember I told you about Karl Marx and the superstructure and the bourgeoisies and the proletariat? We go to their, their, their university, get their degree to fit into their superstructure to make them money and never do anything to change our lives. We're content to just sit right there, a brick in the wall, a cog in the wheel, making money for them and saying, God, why don't you open heaven over my life? Two things are required, and this is why I've come to this passage. The Bible says that, that the, it is the Lord. Remember it again. It shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites. Now, you could read that right there and just get the impression that they didn't do anything. I beg to differ with you. They had to go through the desert. They had to experience some difficulty and some challenges, and they had to face some, some hardships, and they had to fight some wars along the way. Can I hear an Amen. And they had to deal with personal issues on the inside of their own hearts and lives. They had to grow their faith. There was something required of them, but at the end of the day, God's telling them, I'm the one that brought you out. But the point seems to be that God's not bringing anybody out that don't want to go through the trouble to get out with him. Mm. Amen. And so God said, when you get 
out of Egypt and you're in the land that, of, that I have promised and that I'm going to bring you to, this is what I want you to do. I want you, the first thing that opens the matrix of the womb, I want you to give it to me. If it's your son, he's got to be redeemed, dedicated to me. If it's a donkey or an unclean animal, what's got to happen is you either go get a sheep or a lamb, something that's clean. Uh, in God's economy, that was considered clean and noble, and you bring that, offer that, then you can keep that donkey and use it. If you don't, you have to break its neck. Now, this is the problem with that. And it, it, like I've already told you, other passages in the Bible refer to this in abundance. They call that the first fruit offering. And so whenever your, your crop comes in, I want you to take the first fruit. When your first child is born, it belongs to me. Uh, the first of anything belongs to me. And that is where most of us have some problem understanding exactly how we are supposed to let God play a role in our giving. We don't live the blessed life because we say we're going to give that tenth one over here. God said the tenth one is not where the miracle is at. It's the first one that is where the miracle is at. That's the one that is holy that belongs to me. You give me the tenth one, thank you very much. I'm going to bless you. But the supernatural impartation occurs when you give me the first one. And God said, I want the first one. And he said, I'm going to tell you right now that in time to come, your children are going to ask you why you're doing this because it's illogical from a human perspective. And we hear that a lot, don't we? We hear that a lot in today's world, especially from naysayers and people that are not believers. It's illogical to give to God and so forth. And then they always bring up, as I've already pointed out, those few scallywags that abuse giving. Next thing you know, believers themselves are inclined to doubt the efficacy or the faithfulness of, of this principle. And, and we kind of begin to put ourselves in a position where, where we can't receive the supernatural benefit of a blessed life. And it affects us. It does. Amen. Do you know that there are many unbelievers that are walking in financial prosperity that practice first fruits? Do you know as much as you've heard me through the years say that I'd, I'd rather watch paint dry than watch the Kardashians? You, you ever hear me say that before? I've said that a few times, haven't I? And if you think I'm joking, I'm not. I'm serious about that. And uh, you can throw a few other of those reality show individuals in there. Do you know what? The other day I got on the internet and I pulled up some interviews. Do you know the first thing the Kardashian family does? I mean, I, this, this, I'm going to tell you this. The week after all these scandalous photographs of this girl come out, you know what they do every Sunday? They go to church and the first thing they do when they get money is give God the tithe. Oh, now, you didn't know that. Pull it up on the Internet. Amen. And you say, well, they're sure not living right. I know, but it, that, that principle right there on first fruits is where the supernatural favor of God comes in. There are many people who don't live right who have found out that God honors them because they obey the principle behind the giving of the first fruit. On the other hand, let's flip that coin over 
and you got all kind of people in the church that are righteous that don't obey the principle, and you have sinners that are more blessed than the people of God are. I am going to preach. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, but it's true. Amen. But I appreciate that support and response and encouragement very much. Tithing hasn't been taught correctly by the church. It is a huge blessing to us when we do it correctly. Israel gave the first of the harvest as first fruits, and, and then when the rest of the crop came in, gave the rest of their tithe. But the first crop that came in, they even had a festival for it, first fruits festival. And you would think that in their economy, I mean, they didn't have an H-E-B down the, the, the road. They didn't, have, they didn't go to the Sinai Kroger store. They didn't have any of that going on. They had to raise their food. They were an economy based in agronomy and agriculture. Amen. Raising of animals, livestock, and the raising of, 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 of their, their crops. And if you know anything about that, and I was raised on a farm, as you've heard me say before, so I'm a little bit familiar with that. I mean, whenever you have a, a harvest season, you then that, that occurs just before the winter. And you go into as a, a, a dry season, as it were, in terms of productivity after you've had your greatest harvest is when you immediately go into a dry season. Amen. And all of that stuff you got harvested, you start using that up. I remember my grandmother and granddad, our back porch, they covered that with potatoes that we would raise and other vegetables. And during the, the winter months, that, would, that pile would get smaller and smaller and smaller. Amen. It had some they set aside for seed, and under no circumstances do you touch the seed. Because if you eat your seed, you're not going to have anything to plant. I'm talking about principles that guarantee that you will have a harvest. So back to that a while ago about some folks spend at least 100% of what they make, regardless of how much it is they make. There's no seed being set aside. Mm-hmm. And God uses this agricultural perspective to demonstrate even in our modern economic times what we're supposed to be doing that he can bless us. Oh, I need an amen right now. And, and so uh, at the end of the harvest season, uh, what would happen is as we entered into winter and then the end of the winter would come along, we would find that pile getting smaller and smaller. And the temptation is to eat the seed. This is why in the Psalms it says, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Why did he go forth weeping? It's because he was hungry. He had kids that needed something to eat. And he set this aside, and he's hearing his kids say, Daddy, we need this, we need shoes, we need some Nikes, we, you know, whatever. And, you know, we got all this going on, and, and the car has a little problem. And he said, I'm not touching my seed. Mm -hmm. Weeping, he went and planted that, and the Bible said, He will doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Now, whenever those first fruits came out, that's what God was asking for. Bring that to me. When you look at this story, you will find that God even told Pharaoh 
Notice this, Israel is my firstborn, give him to me. The reason Pharaoh got in trouble and lost his empire and Israel ceased and Egypt ceased to be a mighty empire as it had been the greatest of ancient times is because Pharaoh stopped giving God first fruits. God said, I want my firstborn son and Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. When you go back and looking at scripture, you will find, and look at scripture, you will find this is what even Cain's problem was. I've been in churches, raised in churches all of my life, and I've heard people debate why did God bless Abel and receive his offering, and why did he curse Cain's? And, you, and people have speculated, oh, it's because Cain offered vegetables, you know, and Abel offered uh, a, a sacrifice of an animal, and, and blood was provided. God wanted blood because it was typing throughout Scripture the fact that the, someday the Son of God would come. And they go into all of this elaborate theology on why Cain and his offering were not accepted. That's not even what the Scripture says. Genesis 4, verses 2 through 5, it said, Speaking of Eve, then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. God is not upset because people till the ground. He even asked for the first fruits of what they received from the ground. And this is what it says, that in time, the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Notice verse 4, Abel also brought of what? The firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. Cain was very angry in his countenance sale. Next verse says that God simply told him, if you do well, you know, then all, everything's good. You'll be blessed. Why was God so enthused about Abel's offering but not about Cain's? It's because Cain just gave an offering and Abel gave first fruits. The difference was is that Abel gave to God the first that he had. Now, why does that matter? It's because when you give God the first, after you've come through your drought, has anybody been through a dry season? Anybody been through a winter? That's when you're most prone to want to be spent stingy. You know what I'm talking about? Hold on to what you got. I mean, if I'm full, I don't mind sharing my crawfish etouffee and my shrimp creole with you. But if I hadn't had anything to eat today, you don't mind, go get your own, just leave me alone for for a little while until I get done. At the end of the winter season when they have struggled, God said, that's when I want you to give me the first that comes up out of the ground, the first fruits, the first lamb that is born. If it's an unclean animal like a donkey, substitute a lamb for it and you can keep the donkey. But whatever you do, if you're not going to give me a lamb, you have to break the neck of that donkey because you can't keep my first fruits. Because if you keep my first fruits, it's going to bring a curse upon your life. This is why God also told Israel, when you go into Canaan land, I want that first city, the city of Jericho. It's got to be mine. Don't you take anything of it. In each of these cases, as I preached a few weeks ago, God is literally removing the curse that is upon this world that he is now turning over into our hands. 
And this is why you have people like the Kardashians, LL Cool J is a tither. I guess everybody knows that. I guess you know that Warren Buffett gives more than his tithe. I guess you know that Bill Gates gives far in excess of his tithe. Most of these guys have inadvertently stumbled upon an eternal principle that is interwoven into the fabric of the universe. They may not even believe in God, but because they're aligning themselves. Now back to what I talked about in our, the prayer. When you align yourself with the principles of God's kingdom, you're the one that gets blessed. He doesn't get anything out of that. Because he's so complete, he doesn't need anything to be given or added to him. Amen. And so by giving first fruits, you ensure, because God then guarantees that I'm going to see that the rest of your harvest comes in. 1 Corinthians 15 and 20. We now know that, uh, we, but now Christ is risen from the dead. Paul is writing. And Christ is even called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or the first fruits of those that have died. How do we know that we're going to experience the resurrection? If you look at that, 1 Corinthians 15, those of you familiar with your Bible know 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the great resurrection chapter that closes and says that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. I mean, it, 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 mortality shall put on immortality. Death shall be swallowed up in victory and the voice will be heard Echoing around the world that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? This is the chapter that talks about the resurrection. How do I know that I'm going to be resurrected? It's really simple because Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. And once the first fruit is given, it covers the other nine. Amen. It provides insurance. Now, back to the way I began. You speculate on the stock market. Just suppose I had a brokerage company and I could guarantee you that regardless of what the stock market did, your investment would always appreciate. Could, you couldn't get in the door to make an investment because there would be such a, a line, such a queue of people waiting to see me and have me work on their portfolio, you wouldn't have a chance of getting in the door. But this is exactly what God is saying, that if you give me your first fruit, I don't care what anything else goes on and, and happens uh, out there in the world. I guarantee you that I'm going to see to it that your first fruits cover and ensure everything else that you've got coming to you. Amen. Oh, somebody say amen. Now, why is it that some people can give their tithe and do not receive the supernatural benefit? One reason is, as I've said a while ago, they're not doing their part on their end to position themselves where they can be elevated and blessed. Get this settled in your mind. You don't improve yourself. There will be, you're, you're not increasing your capacity to receive. Amen. And the vineyard owner turned to the master of the vineyard and said, give me one more year and I'll dig around this tree. It's not productive right now and there's no fruit now, but I'll dig around it and I'll prune it and I'll put some fertilizer on it and I'll give it some TLC. And you come back a year later and I think that there's going to be some harvest here. 
Amen. And that's what you've got to do with your own life. You've got to dig into your life. You've got to prune some things that need to be removed. You need to fertilize some things that need to grow. You need to develop some skill sets. Amen. Hear what I'm talking about right now. Increase your capacity for God to be able to bless you, but at the same time, honor him with his first fruit, and that will guarantee that God is going to be able to assure your future harvests that are coming in. 1 Corinthians 15 and 23, it says this, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. How do I know that if I die today and lay down and my life ends, how do I know that whenever the trumpet sounds, I'm coming up out of the ground? Is that just mad hope-based in some fictional story that doesn't have any, any roots at all in reality? No. I know that I'm going to be resurrected because I've been inside the tomb where Jesus was buried. And guess what? Buddha was buried and he's still in his tomb. And Muhammad was buried and he's still in his. Amen? And all these other guys, they got buried, they died, they lived, they died, and they were buried, but there was one who lived, died, buried, and got up again. He's the first fruits of the resurrection.